Hey, Reed. Hey, David. How many pairs of jeans do you think you're made every year? I'll go, I'll go lots of millions. It is lots of millions. It's uh, six billion. That's absurd. Six billion pairs of jeans are made every year in the world, which is about three times the number of burgers that McDonald's sells every year. Sort of helps put in perspective that there's about a one-to-one like gene to human ratio on this planet at the moment. Heddle's Blood is brought to you by, get this, the Heddle Shop. If you want to support our podcast, uh, head on over to shop.heddles.com where we've got a lot of the things that we're talking about. We've got jeans, we got shoes, we got tees that are made by Teamsters. We got it all on there. And for blowout listeners, we've got a special 10% off discount that you can include at checkout. That is just the code BLOWOUT, B-L-O-W-O-U-T, and you can use that for 10% off your entire order. So if you enjoy what you're doing here and want to support, head on over and pick something up for yourself. I'm David Chuck, Managing Editor of Heddles, here with Reed Nelson, also Editor and Writer at Heddles. Denim is the thrust of what we discuss here. You know, going back to our namesake is RAR Denim. But uh, it's become the people's fabric, sort of democratized into total ubiquity around the world in just, you know, about 150 years from when, like, denim blue jeans became a thing uh, to them making one for every human on the planet every year. But uh, how did we get here? And how are we at the point where jeans can sort of be the default pant option for most of the globe? So this is sort of the start of a longer series of the history of denim. First, I wanted to do some definitions. What are we talking about as denim? Reed, what do you think of when you think of denim? What, what kind of fabric are you imagining? It's not always blue. I understand that. But like if we're doing word association games, blue, like slanted, twill-ish, different colors on each side, lighter on one side, darker on the other. That's what I'm thinking. Cotton, like twill fabric that is like probably a two by one or a three by one weave. So you got those those like lines, the diagonal lines. Sounds appropriate. Yeah, weft is undyed and warp is dyed. Mostly an indigo, doesn't have to be. I'm a black jean fan myself. And then uh, when you're talking about jeans, this is a thing that like I often think about the difference between like, you know, khaki chinos and how those terms are sort of like interchangeable, but they're not. That like denim jeans are, uh, for me, like in the way that I would like to, I guess, uh, define things for the scope of this uh, series we're doing, that denim is the fabric and like jeans are the pants, if that makes sense. Is, is that, that generally how you think of it? Yeah, because I'm comfortable with saying like, I mean, jean jacket. Jean jacket is very confusing to me. It's a denim jacket. It's like, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm not, I'm not like offended when someone says it. Like, it's not like someone being like a short sleeve, long sleeve button down. Yeah. I understand what the person means, but it is still a syntax thing that like makes me, puts my teeth on edge a little bit. Because you can have like corduroy jeans or like canvas jeans, but like blue jeans, you generally think of those as being made of denim or denim jeans as a specific like material plus like shape. I'm definitely okay with accepting that definition. I will say in my own warped mental framework. Warped mental framework? Not wefted mental framework. If, you, if if we want to talk about the wefted mental framework, I suppose. Um, but when we used to sell like those Bedford cords from from uh, Levi's Made and Crafted or Vintage Clothing, um, and they came in like a cream color, 
Mm. I know they were called like they were they I think they were five oh ones in some capacity. Mm-hmm. But like in my head I was never like those are jeans. I was like those are yeah. pants or those are five pockets. Like for some reason in my head, jeans are made of denim. <laughs> like okay. jeans are jeans are the boat jeans are the, the Venn diagram of like denim and pants to me. Okay. I guess you could have like like would you consider like painter's pants, like denim painter's pants to be jeans? Mm, it is like a variation on a jean, sort of like a square rectangle type thing. So like the uh, the characteristics I tend to ascribe to a pair of jeans are like the two like curved pockets in the front with the um, you know, with pocket bags and then like the patch like coin pocket inside the the like right pocket bag and then like two patch pockets on the back like having um, like a busted out seam um and like the tight rolled hem and generally like you know having a fly that's like zip or button up with like a metal button and belt loops like that's the thing if i was you know you asked like anyone uh, that's like the family feud that's like the family feud episode of like what's a gene yeah you didn't mention the patch yeah and the patch yeah you gotta have the patch i feel like you, like would you disqualify if there's a hammer loop no because that's just like a pair of carpenter pants and that's a type of gene. That's that's additive, not subtractive. It has like a, a pair of carpenter pants has all the things listed above plus more. So like, so the hammer loop would be extra credit, just like a utility pocket. Mm-hmm. Oh, but also the yoke. The yoke is very important. Like if you have a flat like back on a pair of pants, it's just like a straight down drop. Where like the yoke in the back above the back pockets, that's what gives it the uh, the curviness that I think has made them popular for like the last. I don't know, 60 years? That that Wrangler butt? That Wrangler butt, the MWZ, man. All right, so I feel like we've got our definition. It's your definition. I will be clear. I'm a little more inclusive to everyone out there. You know, I, I, I will respond to that as well. You know, like when someone calls me Dave, I still answer. And if someone says, like, these pants are made of jean, I will still understand it. But this is just like... More for the terms of discussion here, although we're about to confuse it very quickly. Ready to talk about where these like fabrics and or shapes came from? Oh, yes. Are we ready to enter the speculation zone? When we get back to like the early history of denim as a fabric, it's not really well documented. No one really knows where these fabrics came from or where they came about because no one was like, writing this shit down in the 1500s about uh, what poor people were wearing. It was not all that important to those that were were learned and had the ability to write things down back then. So uh, much of this is conjecture. Much of this is theory. And uh, you can choose to believe what you want to believe on this stuff, uh, at least. But we're going to present some some fun stories of what might or might not be out there. And to be very clear, it, it might not be good conjecture or good theory. It might not even be good content, but we're going to be here for it. <laughs> so the one that everybody knows and the one that is like ascribed to it of denim is coming from Serge Denim, which that pronunciation is brought to you by four years of high school French, which uh, to break that down, Serge is a twill fabric. Um, so like we're, we're getting there, you know, it's got the, uh, warp and weft yarns that are done in that diagonal type shape and de Nîmes means it comes from Nîmes, France, the town in France, which is supposedly where 
denim originated, which is like the thing, if you know like one fact about the history of denim, you go like, oh, it's from Neem. And that's why denim, denim makes sense, right? Uh, I believed it was Nemes. Like Elaine Bennis, but uh, Serge de Nemes. <laughs> that does track, yes. So yes, mm-hmm. Elaine Bennis. So Sergi de Nemes. <laughs> that one. So fabric composed of mostly wool. Didn't have a lot of cotton in uh, in France in the like 15 and 1600s, which is also confused and complicated by there was another fabric that was just called Nim, N-I-M, which was used in France like before the 17th century, which is again a wool-like surge. Like the rats? Yeah, the <laughs> frisbee and the rats of Nim. No, there's no H at the end. This is N-I-M. <laughs> All right. I'm getting closer. Yeah, and there's some like controversy around this because like a lot of people have speculated that like fabric merchants used to call their fabric like it was from some other place than it was made because they wanted to sound like exotic like it had some cachet so like and a british fabric merchant might have called something that was made in like bristol Serge Denim because he was like, ooh, this is from France. It's imported and fancy. And you didn't really have a governing body that was at the time could, you know, inspect the uh, the stamp on it to say that 70% of this was made in such a region. Didn't have a lot of Appalachian control back in uh, the 15 and 1600s. It's something that we're really fortunate to have these days. Serge Denim was a wool and silk blend from what I can tell, that is not exactly where it came from. That like these these fabrics were like moved around, and it is it's got the twill, it's got the fabric, it's woven, but the material is not the same. And uh, the uh, I guess heritage of it going to the UK in like a couple hundred years um, to that point where it would uh, actually be called denim later on doesn't exactly line up. The other thing that makes this confusing and totally negates the earlier terminology discussion that we devoted some time to is the uh, fact that there was a cloth, a fabric called jean, which was made uh, in Italy from Genoa. You know, you get like uh, Genoa salami, jeans, Genoa, Genovese. The, that is sort of the, um, the origination of that name. And it was worn by Italian sailors. And that fabric was actually blue. It was a fustian fabric, which is another one of those old world terms of like blending together pretty much everything that they had, which was like linen, wool, and cotton all um, lined up together to make this rough, like semi-waterproof twill fabric that was often dyed indigo because the indigo um, was hardier and like gave it a slightly water-resistant ability. And that jean fabric was imported to the UK like extensively in the 16th century. And there is documentation that it was being made in Lancashire by the early 17th century. So like there is a connection where you can see the fabric going from Italy to the UK to something eventually being called denim in the 1700s. And uh, there is even legend like with these Italian sailors that Columbus's ships were made of Denim, not the ships, the sails, the sails in Columbus's ship. Were they dyed blue in the legend? I don't know. But again, we are in the speculation zone. What would they be made with otherwise? Like canvas? Yeah, probably something similar like canvas. Like, I don't know if it would have been made of a twill because like 
the that benefit, makes more sense. The benefit of having a twill is like for abrasion and like bending and like stretching. So if like a sail, you're going to like fold it up and just put it below decks and it's not going to be like, you know, pleated and like get whiskers and, you know, honeycombs like you do on anything that's worn and has a lot of repeated stress patterns. Well, you also can weave it tight enough. I mean, I don't know if they could have then, but you can weave it tight enough where barely any air passes through. Uh, yeah. Through a twill, so you figure it'd be more conducive to catching to catching wind. But mm-hmm. I like Columbus Columbus using denim sails. I like like I like to picture them having pockets and rivets. Yeah, maybe like maybe a salvage ID. They're just like a little. Uh, they had one of the little like children that they made work on the ships, like sitting in a little pocket up at the top, like looking out for the horizon. Children, we're talking about infants. <laughs> they have the small hands. <laughs> yeah. That is a thing that I want to get into because I did do some research of what life at sea in the 16th century was like, and it sucked. Um, is like this is a, a thing that I, I wanted to get into of just like what were the people like that actually wore this jean fabric, and like why did they use it? Were they ever like I'm wearing the same thing the sail is made of? That would be really like sad. <laughs> just like <laughs> you just like look up being like I'm outfitted with the same clothes as the boat. A Kafka-esque existential crisis on like day 50 at sea of like, I am just a small boat made of meat. (laughs) (laughs) Or is the the boat a big me made of wood? (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of children at sea, that is most of the people that were turned into sailors where like if you had a kid and you had nothing to do with them, you would uh, give them basically to a shipmaster when they were, you know, like eight or nine years old. And uh, they would work for free for several years until they were old enough to be like able-bodied sailors. Or if you wanted them to have like a career and make money, you would pay the ship's captain to take your child from you. And then they would end up becoming like a first mate or a captain themselves. But you had to like pay for the privilege. So uh, unpaid internships have been around for a very, very long time. Somehow even less glamorous in the past. I guess that tracks everything was less glamorous in the past. For the most part, yes. G- getting coffee was like dumping the, like the shit bucket. But yeah, the uh, life at sea was a little bit rough because, you know, like a, a crossing from Europe to uh, North America back then would take around like 50 or 60 days, if not more. They didn't even have hammocks apparently on these ships that like hammocks were something that was developed from being like in the new world. And they saw like indigenous peoples there like sleeping in hammocks and they thought, Oh, that's a good idea. But they didn't actually like uh, use them until a hundred years later. So people would just like sleep on the deck, which was covered in hot tar and like uh, seawater. And um, like sailors were like the term for tar for sailors like as a nickname for them came from them sleeping on the decks and getting stuck to the decks covered in tar. And then their clothes would be all striped from the hot tar on the wooden planks on the deck. And then they were like, yo, but this kind of goes hard a little bit, a little bit. And they, they, it was a rough life. Although I did find a, uh, manifest for what kind of foods that a, uh, a sailor would get to enjoy when they were on uh, on deck. This is like a collision of seven of your interests. Continue. So uh, this is the food provided for English explorer Martin Frobisher's second voyage to North America in 1577 was considered sufficient for 120 men for up to four months. Included in the food list on Frobisher's ships were one pound of biscuit, known as hardtack, 
per man per day. So each each person got to eat a pound of bread. They had to have one gallon of beer per man per day, mostly to soften the hardtack because otherwise it was too hard to chew. They had one pound of salt beef or pork per man on meat days. They did not like, uh, apparently depending on what kind of ship you got was how many meat days you got versus non-meat days. And then you got one dried codfish for every four men on fast days. So four guys had to share a dried fish. Oatmeal and rice were loaded as backup in case the fish supply ran out. Uh, one quarter pound of butter and one half pound of cheese per man per day. That, that doesn't sound too bad, to be honest. Um, honey, a hog's head of cooking oil, which was 64-gallon barrel, and a pipe of vinegar, which was like 128 gallons of vinegar. And this was for 120 people for like four months. Which, you know, if you've been in uh, quarantine lockdown, it doesn't sound too bad, honestly. Not at all. There was a lot of spoilage because they didn't have any... um, That's what I was thinking, like, cheese after four weeks in, like, the Atlantic heat. But, like, like, four months is a lot. Like, four weeks covers the gross shit. At what point, like, what day, week, month mark would it just be, like, we're going to just drink seawater and see if it kills us. Mm, that's probably around, I don't know, like for me, maybe week two. Because <laughs> all this hardtack too was like often baked months in advance of going on one of these sea voyages. So the hardtack, I mean, yeah, it already had weevils in it before it was loaded onto the ship. What's a weevil? It doesn't sound good, but I also don't know what it is. Oh, it's like those gross like earwig bugs. Yeah, it's just terrible. And they eat grain and they would like reduce all this hardtack to dust. Would they then eat the weevil? I'm like this. This sounds like a really inefficient mode of transportation. I, I know they didn't have a better one. I'm not like, you know, they should have flown. I, I get that they were they were running up against technological uh, <laughs> innovation limits. But is that why they had to stick unwilling Probably. children on these I mean, boats? Like, what would you have if you stayed of like uh, on land? You would be the surf to some other like vassal, and you wouldn't walk more than like two miles away from where you were born your entire life. And yeah, but you that actually doesn't you sound that bad. Have to deal yeah. with weevils, <laughs> and you just yeah, get drunk like, on like beer with your bros like, every day. <laughs> and London at the time was like very dangerous, but pretty wild, you know, like. I mean, you could you could develop a, a, a raucous pub pub mm-hmm. existence, make those two miles a little um, livelier. It just, I mean, I think this probably says more about me than anything else. But it's just like that sounds like like none of that is like oh I could mm-hmm. stomach it. But here's the thing where they had it a little bit better than at least uh, my clothing situation is uh, sailor brought aboard his sea chest with clothing and a few personal items and clothing on these ships. Uh, that was made of this like jean or denim fact, uh, fabric, usually consisted of a woolen pullover shirt with hood, woolen knee-length trousers with long woolen stockings, and a knitted cap. So it does sound dope, and it was made out of wool instead of cotton, as like we're used to denim being made out of, because you know they didn't really have as much cotton, and things like you know the cotton gin hadn't been invented yet to process it. But also when you're at sea. Like wool is way better at um, resisting water and getting wet than cotton is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's animal clothes. Yeah, and here's the thing where it was 
diff- might have been difficult is they had shoes, but most people went barefoot to avoid slipping on decks and rope. Which meant they just their the bottom of their foot was a splinter. Pretty much. Or covered in tar. They they had hooves, not feet. This again. This so I have a, a logistical question. Did they have like a trail boat? Because you said they carried like 128 gallons of vinegar per. Yes. No, that was all below deck. Yeah, but like, per, how many sailors are on this ship? Uh, for that voyage, it was 120. So we're in like the tens of thousands. Is my math wrong on the gallons of vinegar? Oh no, not not per man. Um, oh, just total. Total, total. So they okay. had like I was like, this is an oil tanker with vinegar. Like, what are these people doing? Yeah, so they had honey and then like yeah. I think the hogshead and of cooking oil and like two hogshead of vinegar was where for they, the entire voyage. So where do they cook? This is uh, a, a closed podcast for anyone still wondering. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they they had like a little kitchen on board with like a cook box. It describes where they could how like often have. Did, a, how often did ships light on fire? I don't know. I think they probably got like decent at it, but like this is also when you think of like the Spanish Armada. Like a lot of these were fighting ships that like had cannons and gunpowder and shit, and were like blasting holes in each other. It wasn't just like, oh shit, we've got to go a really long ways. But then again, these like fighting ships weren't crossing over to the New World really yet. And um, on occasion, quote, New World is a colonist term. I got super into pirates recently. It's story for a different day, and probably not a podcast to be totally honest. But they <laughs> were they were stealing all sorts of ships that were coming from the old world to the new world, like from Brazil all the way up to Cape Cape Cod was a big pirate hub. Do you know that? No, I did not. Never anticipated. The the biggest shipwreck or like the most valuable pirate shipwreck of all time was like right in Cape Cod. Huh. Now it is just home to other corporate raiders and where they vacation on the summer. Yes, that is also accurate. Newport, Rhode Island also at one point pirates dug it. Mm -hmm. Pirates were like the the whole Eastern seaboard, to be honest, like Atlantic. It's, it's all they pirates were hyped on it. But again, Mm -hmm. This is not a pirate podcast. It could be. This is a people who wear denim podcast, and this has become a sailor podcast. If y'all want a pirate podcast, just hit us up because I will go down that journey. I will. I will take the journey with you. Hmm. Oh, more on clothing is like they had no provision for bad weather unless the sailor brought it himself. So you had to bring your own kit for that. But uh, some sailors had up to six changes of clothing to allow for drying soaked clothes and to avoid sleeping in wet clothes. Which, uh, yeah, I would have to get a few more changes of clothes if I was to be a sailor. Um, and they wouldn't, like, personal effects could have a fiddle, a fife, or a tin whistle in their sea chest to provide some music for song and dance and idle times, um, which was replaced by the humble harmonica or concertina in the uh, 1800s. I like uh, the guy who, who just chose the tin whistle. Mm-hmm. Who's just whistling at people? Like you, they're like, "Yo, make music," and he's like, "Nope, I'm just gonna Keep sit here and whistle." And uh, got some interesting like uh, superstitions that were developed around sailors in this time period. Is they were very superstitious because like a lot of boats just disappeared, whether they like you know crashed somewhere or they hit a storm or they like caught on fire, and you would just never hear from the people on that boat again. But like this, 
this is one of my favorite things in history is the disappeared thing. Like the, yeah. like the Roanoke colony left a note. Yeah. They're like, yo, we're going Crap. with the indigenous people. We'll see you later. And then it, like everyone was like, they're like, where did they go? And it's like, they left it. They left a note and they're yeah. like, no, they disappeared. It's like, no, 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 no. There's a note on the, on the tree. They said they were going mm-hmm. <laughs> like these ships sank, right? They didn't Probably. just disappear. So yeah, that they, uh, like all these superstitions, which some still like prevail to this day of like a ship couldn't set sail on a Friday because that's the day that Christ was crucified. And, uh, when making a ship, a silver coin has to be placed underneath the main mast for whatever reason. And, uh, here's one. Yeah. Permanently. They would just like put it in there when it was installed. Even the the ones that disappeared had the silver coin under there supposedly well maybe they didn't maybe somebody got cheap when they were building the the ship and they, they they took it out and they pocketed it and that's why everybody died that's like well i'm a very superstitious person because i play baseball and i watch a copious amount and like i will sit with my legs in the weirdest positions if if the yankees are playing well but the second mm-hmm. it stops working you move your legs that's how like that's how modern super like i'm just fascinated by the fact that they're like we had three ships go down last month that had silver coins so we'll do it again it's good luck Mm-hmm. Uh, here was my favorite one though of uh killing an albatross is like the worst thing that you can do on a boat apparently and if you were caught for killing an albatross um they would take the albatross and you were forced to wear it around your neck like on a like rope like a necklace for the rest of the voyage hence the term of an albatross around my neck how how big are Albatrosses are big, right? Albatry, albatry. I think yeah, they they're like not small birds. I think they're yeah, like they got, eight to ten pounds. Mm. Oh, I thought they were far bigger than that. Can we get a fact check oh, on no, the albatross? Wait. The mass of a wandering albatross is sixteen pounds, and uh, the average wingspan is three point six to four point four feet. So it would very much suck to have this like rotting, dead, like enormous bird around your neck. Where are you getting your information? Because the National Geographic information, I they can get up to be a they can have a wingspan of up to eleven feet. That's a big albatross. This is specifically for the wandering albatross. I'm looking at the Southern Royal. Oh, albatross to be honest, they're the, only, they're the only albatross I now acknowledge to yeah, be totally. A, if you're on a boat, just don't kill an albatross. Oh, an albatross can live for forty-two years, unless you kill them while on a boat. It's like a Don Jr. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, being on a ship, it's, it seems sad and miserable. But like, this is why these are the, the working people that needed that denim or gene in order to uh, live their lives. And, uh, you know, not get uh, sick and like get, you know, pneumonia from getting wet on a boat and then sleeping in their wet clothes. They needed denim made of wool to uh, protect them from that. So why did people wear denim back then? Like what was the, the benefit of it? And it was mostly because that twill pattern um, meant that it would hold up better to abrasion. So the stress on the like outside of the fabric, those warp yarns would break before the weft yarn. So it was easier to patch and repair, um, which is the same thing like you see on every week on Fade Friday here. Where, uh, or on your own, like jeans, when the crotch blows out, like 
you get uh, uh, you still have those like side to side yarns like stay in even though the ones on the outside bust out um so like it was a thing of just like oh form fits function like it was a hardier fabric so people were using it more and it just sort of increased in popularity in terms of how it was made this is all like way 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 before um industrial revolution like even the like water wheel powered looms and like what like at least I can conceive of as the earliest concepts of how fabric was being woven. And a lot of the things on like textile production in the 1500s, 1600s aren't um, concerned necessarily with like working class fabrics like denim or denim or jean um, that like everything I found was on like jacquard looms and other like fancy like silk or velvet fabrics. So yeah, like these are all foot treadle looms of just like people having to tie on all of the things and like spin their own um, like fiber into yarn into woven fabric. Um, so not like massive scale operations at all. Um, and so it's very difficult to see when like different houses had different methods of production that things didn't really get standardized until what you could call a like denim fabric, because like anything from this time period, not a lot of it survived. It was only things from like very rich people or very like royal people that uh, people thought to, you know, maintain their clothing. So yeah, it wasn't really until the UK in the 18th century that what we could recognizably call cotton denim was being produced. And that's sort of all like the muck and the mess of what I could find of how like denim was made. You got the, the Serge Denim coming from France and the Genoese Jean coming from Italy. And they sort of like had this intertidal thing in the UK in like, you know, the 16 and 1700s that eventually created this like blue cotton warp and weft yarn fabric that like someone today might recognizably understand as denim. So David, how did it get to the U.S.? That is funny you asked, because I'm not going to explain it right now. That is next time we are going to get into uh, the part that probably a lot of us know a lot better of how denim fabric came from, you know, the, its recognizable form in the U.K. across the Atlantic Ocean and became the minor pants that we know and love. So we'll get into uh, Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis and miners and all that. Thank you for tuning in. And until then, roll that beautiful gene footage.